Hi everyone, uh, we are back. And uh, although I'm sorry for the unexpected break, but between keeping things on the up and up at Busybodies and dealing with some personal issues, the show has simply not happened over the past few months. Uh, this is real world behavioural science after all, and that's the real world bit. Um, but I'm glad to say that we're back and have some amazing guests for you over the coming months in the regular show, starting with Ivo Vlaev, who I did promise that I would release a few months ago. So sorry about that. But that is coming out and it's a great show. So please do tune in in the next couple of weeks. Um, but in the meantime, we go back into lockdown in the UK over the next couple of days. It's the 2nd of November here. Uh, I'm actually really pleased to be back with Professor Susan Mickey, who is a professor of health psychology and the director of the Centre of Behaviour Change at UCL uh, in London. And I'm really glad to be back with Susan again doing some specials. I hope that you're all well and you've been coping with the coronavirus fallout and I'm really looking forward to hearing from you again in the coming weeks and months as we release more and more shows. So now over to the show. Hi, Susan. Uh, welcome back to the show. If you can believe it, it was actually April that we last did a show on the coronavirus, which seems like an age ago. Um, obviously, there's lots happened since then, including my own hi hiatus from the podcast. So apologies to listeners for the break, but we quite simply had to prioritise ensuring our services and staff were able to support the public. So unfortunately, the show took a back seat during that period. However, I am incredibly happy to say that we're back now and uh, we're pleased to be back with Professor Susan Mickey uh, with another coronavirus special. So welcome back to the show Susan. Hello nice to be here. Susan we've had an incredibly challenging summer to say the least um, and it seems that we're now heading back in the wrong direction again um, and this for listeners this is being recorded in early November so this is just after we've gone through the sort of different tiers around the country in the UK of going into local lockdowns uh, or at least restrictions and now we're just a couple of days before we're going into a national lockdown so uh, my question to start Susan I suppose is uh, is this the same as the initial lockdown and if not what about this one is different? Well, it's really disappointing that we're here and we shouldn't have been here. And we'll go into that later. Um, but it's second time around. So on the one hand, people know what to expect. They know how they dealt with it for better or worse last time. They've got that to draw on in terms of thinking about how they're going to get through. So it's not completely novel, yeah. which was partly what made things so anxiety provoking last time. Yeah. On the other hand, people have had a rough year. Some of them have had very rough years um, and um, also feeling a bit hopeless that there isn't a strategy, a plan, an exit plan from the government and the heart sink that we may be going into another period of lockdown, well, we are going into another period of lockdown when we're going to have to sacrifice in many ways um, various things um, without knowing when we come out of it that we will be in a very different situation. And so the concern is, I think, for people that are we going to be yo-yoing in and out of this kind of uh, lockdown, transmission rates come down, ease the restrictions, up they go, and we have wave after wave. Now, there is an alternative, uh, which is what Independent Sage has been saying all the way along, um, of um, working towards zero COVID, getting the transmission rates down really low and keeping them there. And other nations are adopting this also, and it's been very successful. But that does mean 
getting an effective test, trace, and isolate system, which we simply don't have at the moment. Mm. And a lot, obviously, a lot of money's gone into that. So, what do you, I mean, without getting too political, what, do, what, what is the biggest failing? Why, why have other countries managed to do that and we haven't? Um, yeah, an eye-watering twelve billion pounds has gone into it, mm. and the the main reason is that it's not been based in the uh, public health infrastructure in the regions and in the localities and delivered by people with the experience and the expertise who know their local communities and are trusted by their local communities. This is what other countries have successfully done. This is what um, the public health experts and others have been calling on in the UK. And uh, unfortunately, um, not only did the government go with these very big uh, corporate commercial contracts who don't have the experience or the expertise for what is often very skilled work of mm. tracing people, of persuading people to isolate and give contacts um, to them. Um, and uh, not only did they, uh, <laughs> first of all, give the money to the contracts, but when they had opportunities to cease those contracts and put those huge amounts of resources into the local public um, health structure, they haven't done it. Um, so people are carrying on saying you've got to do differently mm. um, so at the moment basically if you think it's a you have to find the people then you have to get them tested then you have to trace their contacts then you have to ask them to isolate and then you have to support them so who the world health organization calls this find test trace isolate support at every single point along the way the government's uh, not doing it so we're not finding the people we know from research that uh, I and others have been involved with that still only about 50% of people know the three key symptoms of COVID-19. So mm. if people don't know the symptoms, we're not finding uh, the, the people that we should be. Then in terms of testing, well, we know the debacle that's been going on in terms of a shortage of testing and testing not being accessible uh, to people where they need it. Uh, that is thankfully improving. Um, but then tracing people, this is this is a absolutely lamentable rates at the moment. Um, huge problem there. If people, if contacts aren't traced, that's a problem. The other thing is the test results aren't coming back within the 24 hours that's needed. So you have big delays. Then the, tr the people aren't traced. Then even when they are traced, uh, we know again from the same research, weekly surveys um, that have been commissioned by the De Department of Health and Social Care, that 20% of people only um, have been isolating for the 14 days when they're asked to. So that means 80% have been wandering around the community with symptoms. Um, right. And this is a desperate situation. And we know the reasons. Uh, the reasons are they have to go out uh, because of caring responsibilities outside the house. Uh, they go out because they need provisions and they need to go out to get income for their jobs. In other countries, um, People are well looked after. You know, they're often visited every day to ask if they're all right. Do they need their rubbish put out? Do they need any provisions? Um, and also uh, psychological support is often, help, is often offered. And also people are financially compensated, you know, so they're not losing income. And in some countries, people are offered alternative accommodation too, where they can't isolate at home. So you can see, I mean, the positive is, there's massive room for improvement here. 
Well, it's good to have a positive at the end. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because one of the things that, I, you know, I, I, I take all those points. I think that the um, the support point is a very, very good one. I mean, obviously this show is about sort of the behavior and your your background in, and speciality is in in behavior. So let, let's talk a little bit about that. So, so what do you think people will find different about this lockdown period from a behavioral perspective that, you know, you said that they're a bit more used to it because they've done something, but something similar in the past. But obviously there's a slight difference in the time of year. There's also a bit of fatigue i remember we talked about and you picked me up on in one of the one of the shows I, I, what was the term they used it was something like behavioral fatigue, fatigue or something yeah. Yeah. yeah that's sort of coming back a bit now in some way or covid fatigue or something along those lines so you know what's what's going to be different this time about the lockdown period for people from a behavioral perspective okay so at the big first time around there was massive uh very high trust in the government uh, and their advice and you always find the this in emergencies and crises people want leadership. They rally around whoever is in the leadership. And that happened. And that's incredibly important because we've got very good evidence that trust in the government or the authorities that are asking you uh, to engage in various restrictions is really important for adherence. Now, um, the last figures I, I, show, I saw, um, the trust in the government's handling of the pandemic was um, only in 29% of the population, maybe even lower now, um, which is quite a disastrous situation when we're facing the kind of crisis we are in. So that's one thing that's changed uh, from a behavioural point of view. Um, as you say, uh, the season is different. We were coming out of the winter last time around. Thank goodness we had a glorious spring and summer mm. and people could be outside eating, drinking with friends, picnicking, whatever. Obviously, now we're coming into the winter, and so uh, much more difficult. Yes, we can wrap up warm um, and, and go out, and we should do that as much as we can. Um, if we see anybody else, you know, it should be outside uh, where we know um, that the virus is so much less likely to um, spread. Um, there's a, a global database which showed that of the um, sort of super spreading events, i.e. where more than five people were infected, 93% um, mm -hmm. of those happened indoors, sorry, 97% indoors, only 3% outdoors. Um, so, but the reality is that people will be spe spending more time indoors. And, um, you know, what one of the things actually since we last spoke, which is really important from a behavioral point of view, is knowing more about the transmission. So when we last spoke, mm. the emphasis was on keeping your hands um, and surfaces disinfected, not touching eyes, nose and mouth, um, having tissues. Now, obviously, we add to that face masks, but all about um, preventing, you know, a lot of it, the touching surfaces, preventing, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, all of that. Whereas now what we know and also... You know, we knew that there was infection through droplets, hence the two meter distance, because yeah. droplets fall in a particular arc. And so most of them will fall to the ground in two meters. But since we last spoke, there's much more evidence now about the role of aerosols. So transmitting this virus by tiny, tiny little droplets that hang around in the air for many hours, which explains quite a lot as to how this is so infectious, you know, people getting ill, even when they were being, you know, really religious about cleaning their hands and surfaces, mm, et cetera. Mm. And um, so unfortunately, this means when people are spending more time indoors, they are really at risk. 
if there's one person who's infected in a room and you're there for a couple of hours, um, you know, the chances are reasonably high. But again, a new thing we haven't talked about, this means that ventilation is absolutely key. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's something like if you have the air in, in, indoors recirculated at least five times in an hour, that's enough circulation to protect you from getting a dose that's likely to be high enough to um, you know, go from a few viruses that might come your way to actually getting ill. And, and I mean, when we talk about, you know, giving people clear information, I think people would struggle to think what what does five times air circulation look like? And so, so what does that actually mean in pragmatic terms? I mean, in pragmatic terms, it means keeping windows and doors open enough as much as you can bear in terms of how cold it right. is. I mean, that's the trade-off. And people are just going to have to get, you know, into the way of it, as I used to do when I was a child in Edinburgh, of wearing thermal vests, thermal <laughs> leggings, you know, many layers yeah. of uh, jumpers on. Um, we always went to bed with a hot water bottle. Well, sophisticated people now have electric blankets. But really, you know, keeping ourselves as warm as we can to allow the air to be as, let's say, fresh as it can. Yeah, because from, from a behavioural perspective, there's this sort of cognitive and, and, and um, you know, this planning self, if you like, of saying, right, we're not going to meet indoors. But there's also a huge automatic drive to want to be warm and cosy and also to see your loved ones. So it's actually going to be a really tricky thing for people. And, and I suppose that's going to be even more tricky if it does go into December as well, because traditionally, obviously, people love being with their families and they haven't been able to this year. And so December could be, you know, if it goes goes on that long, which, it, you know, very well could. Um, that could be an even worse sort of time for people being tempted to go and see loved ones and spend time indoors, couldn't it? Well, we're very social animals. We need people. Um, mm. You know, it's very, very hard. Um, and, and this is why it's been hard, um, you know, all the way along in the first uh, round two. Now, I don't know, you know, time will tell. Is it that people have developed ways of getting social support even when they have to go back into this sort of restrictions that we are? Um, and therefore will be more resilient this time around. They also know that they did come out of it um, in whatever shape they came out of. Um, mm. So having been through it once and come out of it may make people more resilient. Um, you know, I think probably more so that than saying, well, we've done it once, we're not going to do it again. Because again, what we know from the evidence is that if people think that their behaviour is making a key difference in this area, um, they will, you know, really adhere to quite a lot yeah. of restrictions. So there's really good evidence looking across uh, across countries um, that people's belief that it's worthwhile in terms mm. of the impact on reducing the pandemic is one of the biggest predictors, alongside uh, trust being being another big one. Yeah, no, I think you're. I think you're. You're, you're totally right. Um, and and what I mean, what are the other barriers that you can foresee as being um, preventing people engaging with, with the guidance? Um, do you think it's clear enough for one thing? Well, I think when we say the guidance, I think we need to think about different kinds of guidance because when we're looking at um, you know hand hygiene, even wearing masks, you know the great majority of people are doing this and say they're doing it. Yeah. Um, 
I think where the where it's most um, challenging for people is this issue about contact with other people. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, that's what the virus loves. It lo- loves people coming together because you know it mm. can hop from one person to another. Um, and we also know from the data over the last few months that the groups that have found this most challenging are younger people and especially younger men. It's not surprising. Uh, younger people are more active. Uh, it's a time of their life when actually they're kind of almost their DNA <laughs> predetermines them to go out and mm-hmm. have relationships with other people. Um, but also their peer group is very important to them socially and and in terms of identity. So there's um, huge reasons why young people, you know, are um, much more in need of of their peers and other people than than older people and i think this should be recognized um and should be addressed and and one thing that um the behavioral science advisory committee i'm on um has been advising the government all the way along is to really um engage with the communities especially the communities that are finding things most difficult um and work with them to think about what are the problems and you know Together, you know, the co-produce or, or co-create is the kind of um, fashionable words these days. But together, um, come up with solutions that are likely to be appropriate uh, for that group. And I do think there's ways in which there can be outdoor events that are safe enough that could be sponsored by the government, you know, to, yeah. to show that they appreciate the issues and they're spending money um, to help people, you know, have some kind of good um, entertainment interactions with each other, but in safe ways. And, and I think it'd be well worth every penny spent on that. Yeah. I think, and I think a lot of people would um, agree with that because obviously one of the things that I suppose was predicted, but we didn't, you know, couldn't quantify ahead of time was the mental health impact of um, coronavirus either because of, you know, social isolation, but also, you know, fear of, of losing people's jobs and, you know, the, the, the mental stress of having the kids there the whole time and educating them whilst you're working and et cetera, you know, and there's, there's a lot of mental health issues so much so, and here's a little plug that comes off the back of quite a terrible thing, but, but we, we've just started a new podcast called real world public mental health, which is all about, you know, um, the first one, uh, came out yesterday relating to, just how much coronavirus has impacted people's mental health and all of the different areas in which it has. And um, I know we're going to be talking in a couple of weeks with Dr. Uh, Nazreen Alwan about long COVID and about the, the long-term impacts both physically uh, and mentally on, on people and particularly young people, because it was thought that people would just, you know, young people would get it, bounce back, go back to caring, go back to work. But actually that's not been the case for everyone. And that's something that we need to sort of talk about, but we'll talk about that in another couple of weeks. I don't want to take us off in that direction just yet. I think think the general point you're making is young people are the real losers here, you know, Mm. in all of this. And actually, if you look at um, the sort of levels of stress, of anxiety, depression, et cetera, it's really young people that are, are, are really suffering. To be honest, a lot of the older people are absolutely fine. Yeah. <laughs> and and actually some groups, you know, who are economically secure and older groups, some of them are actually kind of better, uh, yeah. you know, than, than before. But, you know, young people, it's their futures they're losing. Mm. It's potentially their homes or the possibility of ever getting a home. It's their jobs. You know, many of them are in, you know, the, the freelance, the gig economy, et cetera. 
it's it's the younger generation who really need to be looked after um, in all senses. Yeah, and, and I suppose the other thing that sort of brings us on to um, who's been affected the most, obviously, when you said the young people are, are the biggest losers there, I, I wonder what you meant. But, but, yeah, but, but I mean, <laughs> not the no, it's okay, you, you clarified it, it's fine. But, but I mean, the, the, um, the inequalities, you know, we know that it's been, it's been a big thing in terms of people uh, in lower socioeconomic groups, That's, it's, it's disproportionately affected them. Could you just speak to, to that a little bit for us? You know, how, how, what's the data been like over the past few months around that absolutely so you know we started off at the beginning of the year one of the most unequal countries in the world we're very unequal um incredible inequalities that we know are bad for physical health for mental health for social cohesiveness just for everything and um unfortunately the pandemic itself the virus itself coronavirus has made it more unequal so those people who are living in the poorest housing conditions who have um, comorbidities, um, who are more likely to have been people from poorer backgrounds, um, people with um, often public-facing jobs, which tend to be the lowest paid, mm -hmm. are the ones that have suffered uh, most. Um, also, black and ethnic minority groups, uh, much more so also, especially some. Um, so that was all happening anyway as a result of the inequalities. It, it's been magnified um, by by the virus. But then on top of that, you have government policies, which has further exacerbated the inequalities. So, um, you know, reasonable provision for mortgage payers, but not those who are paying rent. Mm. Reasonable prov provision for people who are salaried, but not those in the gig economy or on freelance. Still millions of people who are left without a penny. Um, and this issue about inequality and people perceiving things to be unfair is another really important issue that undermines adherence. So it's not only wrong in itself, I think, and unethical in itself, but it also undermines the whole collective effort and the possibility of the whole society getting out of the pandemic. So actually, for those who are wealthy and comfortable off, it is in their interests to redistribute income um, across society, I would argue. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. I mean, you don't often talk about fairness in behavioral science really too much, do you? But I think it's a, you know, it's a fundamental thing that people really understand and, and want, you know, and I, I whether it's is a bit contentious or not, I don't know, but thinking back to the Dominic Cummings effect of, of, you know, when he, he sort of drove up and whatever happened there, um, I think that was one of the biggest turning points in this in this pandemic in this country because people felt fundamentally though there was one rule for one and one for another and that fairness really impacted the way people perceived uh, the government at that time. Absolutely, and the data bear you out. You, you look at the uh, you know percentage of people who trusted the government to handle the pandemic well. It plummeted. I mean, it began mm. going down after the mixed messaging began coming in. You know, starting with staying alert, and they, it kept yeah. kept carrying on. And the, the mixed messaging kind of has got out of control. You know, <laughs> every few days there was something else coming in, and it wasn't just mixed, but it was overload and different things in different nations, different things began coming in in different parts of the country. And, you know, really people couldn't keep up. And, you know, so if people can't remember what it is they're meant to be doing, people just say, you know what, <laughs> I, I, I'm just going to try and work it out for myself as best yeah. I can and kind of 
be be sensible. Um, but you know, the, this social divisiveness has carried on. You know, mm. the whole thing about the tier system and not giving the same furlough system uh, support to Manchester as was given to the South. Now yeah. we have another lockdown and suddenly, yeah, well, Manchester could get the same furlough system because the Southerners are. You know, so the whole South-North divide was completely avoidable. Um, yeah. And then there's other just small things, but it indicates an attitude. Um, you know, why is it that you can't have seven members of your family who you trust because you know kind of the lives they lead socially distanced in your own back garden but you can have 30 people together if you happen to be on a grey small carrying a gun you know right makes yeah. no sense you know unless there's one rule for us and another rule for, for you and and we know that the collective solidarity the pulling together um we're all in this together is such an important part of getting through this and that's been fractured um you know i have to say mm. as a result of um government policies and um we've had unfortunately um when you when you don't have strong leadership you open up vacuums where other narratives can can get hold and unfortunately you know i think it's especially again amongst young men you know kind of attractive narratives of, you know what, there's nothing we can do about this. Um, you know, the sort of herd immunity, you know, mm -hmm. it's not such a problem. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of the other things aren't working. So let's just get on with things. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a big shame that that's happened. But on the other hand, you know, we saw how sensible people were First time around, I mean, they actually began locking down before the government told them to. Yeah, I think you know, and you look at the data, and despite all of what we've been talking about, that has fractured people's trust, people's collectivism, um, people's um, morale. Despite that, you look at the data, and still, uh, you know, overwhelming majority are adhering to the restrictions. And recent data actually show, amongst all the age groups, interestingly that more people wanted more restrictions rather than fewer restrictions over the last yeah. few weeks. Yeah, and, and also on a positive note, you know, this is a, a minor one, but it, it's from a behavioural perspective, again, like y y there was a tipping point with masks as well, where, where you know, you, all of a sudden people, there was like a moment where some people were wearing masks in shops and things, and then all of a sudden everyone just wore masks in shops. And now it's a real thing. You couldn't go anywhere without your mask or whatever. Mm. You, you'd feel really out of place, I think, if you were trying to go into a shop without one. I mean, I have had to run home before to get a mask because I didn't want to even chance going in even quickly to get to get a, a something from a shop. So I think there's, some, there's been some good social norming going on on some of those fronts. Um, but yeah, it's it's not um we're not exactly where we want to be just yet are we but but is there a positive note we can end on susan before we uh, <laughs> before we bum everyone <laughs> well um you know one of the things we did we did see uh around the the first time was um people really looking after each other looking out for each other and looking after each other in communities and we also know from the evidence that one of the most powerful influences on people abiding by these restrictions is the motivation to take care of others 
to look mm. after others. And that is, um, you know, I, I, I always have a huge belief in human beings. And I, I feel that the extent to which human beings aren't like that is the extent to which they've had really rough times growing up and uh, mm-hmm. are badly let down by society. But I do believe that people are essentially very good and very caring and um, very social. And um, I think the optimism lies in our communities. Um, you know, as we've talked about, I can't be terribly optimistic about this government learning the lessons um, because it hasn't been up till now. Um, I do think that uh, there's huge power, huge strength in communities. And I know it's really difficult when people are isolated from each other and locked down. Um, but I think the more that people can get strength uh, from each other um, by looking after each other and being looked after and asking for help, from each other, the more we cement the bonds uh, between people and 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 build communities and build community resilience, because sadly it doesn't look like this is going away. It looks like we're going to have to live with COVID at some level, but we also need to really think about what sort of society do we need to make for a resilient society, so we never have to go through this shambles in this way again, and. Um, I think, you know, bringing together communities, communities being able to give voice to what does build back better mean for them? That's where my hope and my confidence lies. Yeah, and I th- I, I love that point. I think it's really, really a, a great sort of note to end on. And, you know, December does does give people a sense of wanting to connect with people and I, I hope that they sort of embrace the, the challenge of doing it safely and uh, and I think that the community side of things is something that people are thinking more and more about and, and it hasn't been something that's gone away um over the over the summer it's been something that people have really valued when they've when they have managed to get together so hopefully that will continue on beyond uh, you know December and the rest of the lockdown so yeah thanks susan for another insightful show it's great to get your views on all of these different things and um you know i'm 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 conscious of the fact that we want to make sure these stay nice and snappy so we'll keep them under half an hour but we're going to do a few of these over the next uh, couple of months and certainly whilst we're in lockdown because we want to give people who are listening a good opportunity to hear the sort of broad swathe of things that are going on and also some pragmatic ideas about how to help people in their communities sort of you know uh, adhere to the rules and make sure we reduce the overall burden of the of the virus um so susan thank you very much for your time absolute pleasure to have you on the show again my pleasure it's great to be here and looking forward to uh, next time great stuff thanks susan just wanted to say thanks again to susan there for uh, coming back on the show and giving us the benefit of all of our experience and our views on the coronavirus situation as it stands um you can see susan every friday at 1 30 by the way on youtube um and i'll put the link into the show notes because it's a place where independent sage meet uh, each week and they consider questions from the public and they really delve into the science so you can see it all being done live uh, so that's really something that's worth checking out and you can also go onto the independent sage website for all of the reports that independent sage which susan's a member of uh have have produced in the past so go and check that out Uh, as i said in the show we'll be meeting with both susan and dr nizreen alwan from southampton university talking about long covid which is the ongoing symptoms that you can suffer if you've had covid Uh, and not only is she an epidemiologist but also she's actually had it and had a a sense of ongoing symptoms afterwards so it'll be a really interesting show 
as I mentioned, also we're going to be releasing the Evo Vlaev show. So that will be one of the normal shows, uh, which we actually recorded back in March. But that is a really great show, something to, to enjoy listening to. And, you know, something that's just not focused exclusively on coronavirus, which is something we all need to do from time to time. If you want to get hold of me, you can do so on Twitter at Stu underscore King underscore HH. You can add me on LinkedIn or you could check out my blog on our website, which is busybodies.com under the professionals and Stu's blog tab. Uh, and in that blog, I give my views on weight management, on behavior change and on the public health industry. Thanks for listening. And until next time, make sure you look after each other and stay safe. Stay safe.